Dear Lord, thank you this morning for a room full of men and women who just want to know you, Lord, and serve you, who love you because you love them first, and who are drawn by your spirit into a community of like-minded Christians seeking to bring the gospel to the nations and to represent you as light in this world. But of course, Lord, if we're to do those things and to do them effectively, we have to be trained, and that training is through your word. And so we sit at your feet this morning. We await that training. Father, we know that through the book of Hebrews, and in particular verse uh, chapter 11, we're going to learn from the examples of others who've gone before us, men and women, whose lives reflect the faith that we share with them. And therefore, Lord, I ask if their faith could lead them to do the things we've learned and heard in this chapter, then since we share their faith, Father, I pray that we would also share their lives. And in the things you called them to do and to endure and to witness, I pray, Lord, you would also give each of us some measure of opportunity to do the same. For we know that in obedience comes blessing to you from you, and, and obedience, Father, is our goal. So show us, Lord, and encourage us and give us the strength to follow what we learn. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, our tour through the Hall of Faith comes to an end. We spent a little over a month wandering through the halls, so to speak, studying each exhibit one at a time of saints who lived according to their faith in God's promises. It's been a great chapter. I hope you agree. I've really enjoyed going through it again myself. And that tour, as you remember, began with a definition of faith. Then it progressed through the corridors of time, down through the books of the Old Testament, looking at men like Abel and Enoch and Noah, who acted in confidence that God was going to do as he promised to do. That then moved to the patriarchal period, Abraham, who wandered because he knew his reward would come in heaven. And he offered up his son in sacrifice because he knew God could resurrect him. And then to Jacob, who blessed his sons and then said, make sure that when I die, you bury me back in the land of Canaan, because he knew that's where he would be resurrected, another promise that he believed in. Joseph, likewise, in the verse we studied last week, Joseph had commanded that his bones be taken back for the same reason that his father wanted to be buried there. And then Moses. We ended last week looking at Moses' example, that Moses was a man who would trade the easy life of the world for the hardships of serving God among his people. Further evidence that he had faith that his rewards don't come in this life, but would await another life in the kingdom. And today we're going to end with a mention of a few more saints, followed by a flurry of named and nameless individuals who exemplify really the same point. This central message that faith will always inform the life of the saint so that they would live according to what they believe, taking action consistent with an expectation that God is faithful to do what he's promised. That's the core of all of this. You know, you can live with faith and not let it show. James is the letter that reminds us of how important it is to not just be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. I like to think of it this way. God is all powerful and accomplishes all things through us. But that word through is a key word. If it's not through you, it'll be through someone. But why not through you? There's a story of a man named Joe who found himself in trouble because he was in faith, but not living the faith, not letting God work through his faith. He had a business that had gone bust and he was in serious financial trouble. And so in desperation, he was praying to the Lord for some source of relief, some help. And he began to pray on one particular day saying, God, because I've lost my business, because I 
I don't have any money because I see my family struggling and I'm going to lose my home and my my valuables, etc. He says, Lord, would you just let me win the lottery? Well, it's not my way of thinking that we should appeal to the Lord, but this guy was desperate, so he put that out there. Lotto night came, somebody else won, and he felt seriously let down, even though the odds are long. He thought, you know, I had put this before the Lord. I expected him to respond, and he asked again the same thing. He said, Lord, you know how desperate I am, and you know how much this would make a difference if you would just let me win the lottery. And another of the lotteries came by, and of course he lost again. He thought, well, maybe I should pray once more. Maybe it's the persistence of prayer that will make the difference. And on this particular night, he began lamenting, Lord, why have you forsaken me? I've lost my business now. My house, my car has been repossessed. My wife and children are at wit's end. And I don't often come to you asking for help like this. And I have always been a good servant. Would you please just let me win the lottery one time and I can get my life back in order? Now, at this moment, a blinding flash in the room filled the room with light. And he's confronted with a voice from heaven that says, Come on, Joe, meet me halfway, buy a ticket. (laughs) Likewise, the saints in this chapter have all made their life about serving God according to what they believe. The Lord has always asked them to do something in response, not because he needed it, but because it was an opportunity for testimony. And as you're going to see today, that faith, the faith that drives their lives, always revolves around an expectation of reward in eternity after resurrection. Not in this life, not necessarily now. Look at your first example to see the point. Verse 30, where we pick up. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. That's all the writer gives us as we start in this exhibit this morning. Last week in verse 29, you remember the the writer mentioned the passing of Israel through the Red Sea following the exodus from Egypt. That was an example of faith there, as we saw last week. It was an example first in Moses' case because Moses rebuked the nation in their fear at that critical moment as the walls hemmed them in and as the army of the Egyptian pharaoh was about to pounce on them. And he knew in his heart the Lord was going to provide some way of escaping because the promise given to Abraham was that they would be enslaved, but then they would be set free and they would enter into the promised land. And so Moses knew the only way God could do what he promised is if he found a way to give them escape. And so he had confidence, even if he didn't know how. And he acted in that confidence. But it was also an example of faith for the people because those people, once they saw the walls of the water standing on either side, they had to have a moment at least of faith in God's protection to walk through that wall of water. You've seen the movie, right? It's an amazing thing to see it all happen in front of you. I'm sure it's unimaginably impressive. But now you have to ask yourself, how long are those walls going to stay up? Will they stay up long enough for me to get through? They trusted the Lord would save them, at least in the physical sense, from those walls of water. And there were many other supernatural displays of God in the course of the wanderings in the wilderness, getting through the Exodus and out from the Exodus, So really, if you think about it, the Red Sea marks the very beginning, the most dramatic moment at the beginning of a 40-year period of God doing amazing things with Israel. Never mind just manna every day. Shoes not falling apart, as the scriptures tell us. Well, now in verse 30, what the writer has done is he has jumped from the very beginning to the very end. If you will, verses 29 and 30 form bookends around the Exodus. Because Israel's encounter with Jericho serves as the semi-official end of their wanderings and their entrance into the promised land under Joshua. 
So just as the beginning of their journey was marked by an act of faith, so was the conclusion. In this case, the story of Jericho begins with Joshua leading the people of Israel. And as a result of taking control after Moses' death, he begins to set everything straight according to God's law. He circumcises the whole nation because, as they had been wandering, their parents had not circumcised the children. Further evidence that that generation of Israel was unbelieving. And then, for the first time in 40 years, they celebrate the Passover as they come into the land. And also they begin eating off the land because the manna stops just as they arrive at the base of Jericho. And then the Lord appeared to Joshua and he tells Joshua that this walled, fortified city of Jericho, which was impregnable in that day. I mean, this is one of the major cities in the land that this city had been delivered into their hands. All that Joshua and his army would have to do in order to obtain the promise was to march around the city for seven days, as the writer in Hebrews mentions here. They did this carrying the Ark of the Covenant, blowing horns, saying nothing. And at the end of each day, they did their walk around. At the end of each day, they'd go back to the camp. But on the seventh day, as you probably know, they went and did it seven times instead of just once. And at the end of the seventh time, the walls, the Bible says, literally fell flat. The Lord gave very specific instructions. And the people, as we're told in the scripture, followed exactly what Joshua relayed to them. And the walls fell flat. Now, faith in God's word will often require us to do things that are seemingly crazy and outlandish. Things that the world would never accept on its face. Do you think anyone in Israel may have heard the plan from Joshua had a moment's thought and said, okay, let's go through this from top to bottom again, Joshua. We're going to go walk and blow horns and then walls just are going to magically fall down. That's what you're telling us, right? And he's going to say, yes, that's what the Lord has promised us. Now, in that moment, you have a step of faith required, right? You have to decide, am I going to do what's required of me by God and see the result that I expect? Or am I going to imagine for myself that this isn't the way it's going to happen and then come up with plan B? Think about what God did. God gave instructions that ensured that when the walls fell down, as they eventually would, there would be little doubt in Israel or in Canaan as a whole that God knocked down the walls. Would anyone have credited the people with the walls coming down after they went through such a ridiculous display? Of course not. In fact, this laughable little ritual of walking and blowing horns, it looks like a children's game. Can you imagine what the people in Jericho were thinking as they watched this thing happen around them? It was intended to look ridiculous. In the sense that for the unbelieving world, there could be no possible rational explanation for the defeat of Jericho, except that the God leading Israel had the power to do what he did. So therefore, at the end of it all, all the glory, all the credit goes where it belongs, which is on the Lord. Remember what the Lord said to Israel? You may not know this if you haven't studied the end of Deuteronomy and the beginning of Joshua. But at the very end, as Moses is preparing to die and Joshua is preparing to lead them in, the Lord says this to Israel before they enter Canaan. In verse 1 of Deuteronomy 9, he says, Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Great cities fortified to heaven, which is an exaggeration to make the point. So the people were told, even before they walk in, you're going in against a formidable enemy that is much greater than you. But then he also told them this in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the people. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you 
and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you see what the Lord's doing? He says, let's get the facts straight. You're small. They're big. You're powerless. They're mighty. So don't think for a minute, Israel, that when we walk into the land that you're going to defeat them on the basis of your own power. Because when you do win, I don't want the story to be told the wrong way. And in fact, as we see in Jericho's case, I'm going to ask you to do ridiculous things just so there's no misunderstanding. But then he adds, you're going to win, not because of your power, but because of mine and not because you deserve it, but because I made a promise. So it's based on faith in the word of God that you'll see these things transpire. But you also have to understand they had to walk in. They had to walk around. I mean, think about it for a minute. Did the walking around the walls of Jericho, did it actually accomplish the falling of the walls, the felling of the walls of the city? Well, not in the sense of the power behind that act, the power to make the walls come down came from God. We know that. But ask yourself this. What if they hadn't walked in blown horns? What if they had not been obedient? That's the amazing connection that I see in Scripture over and over again between the power of God to work according to his promise and yet the call to work through obedient servants. Not because he needs us, not because our walk or our work or our effort is an elementary part of the process for him, but rather because by our faithful actions, we testify to his power. The world was forever going to know that when that wall fell, It fell because the God of Israel made it fall. How would people have known the God of Israel did that work? Only if Israel was around the wall when it fell. The complement to this lesson is found in the example of Rahab, which is the next verse, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Here's another of those Short verses that really depends on your knowledge of Old Testament stories. In this case, the story of Rahab. She's one of the two Gentile women listed in the genealogy leading to Christ. You may know from Matthew's first chapter. She was a resident of Jericho, but more than that, she was a prostitute in the city. So she occupied the lowest rung on the social ladder in that city. And being a Gentile, she would carry even less stature among the Jewish people, for she was a Gentile prostitute. I mean, you don't get much lower than that. And yet, when the spies of Israel entered into the city on the command of Joshua to assess the strength of their enemy before they were to attack the city, they had to go in, obviously as spies, they had to go in without being detected, without being found by the people in the city. And there came a point where they needed somewhere to stay. And they came to Rahab's home and she protected them. She protected them even from the point when the king of the city got word of the spies being somewhere in his city. And more than that, he actually got word that they were Rahab's home. And the king sent his representatives to go find the spies and take them. When they came to the home, Rahab told them they weren't there. She hid them out on the roof. Why would Rahab do that? Why would a woman who is a resident of Jericho... And someone who had little reason at all to have interest in a foreign invading army, why would that person risk her own neck for foreign spies? Well, let me have her explain it to you in her own words from Joshua chapter 2, verse 9. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land 
and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water in the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sister with all whom belong to them and deliver our lives from death. That's her speech to the spies when she hides them. She says, all the people in the city know of the exploits of Israel as they left Egypt and as they've come to enter into the land. The stories are getting around. They've heard that it's a miraculous thing that the Lord is doing with this nation, that the people are being led by a God who has the power to destroy any adversary. He's more powerful than all the gods of Egypt. He's defeated kings in the land. And as they hear this news, it says that the people of the land faint in fear, basically, as a result of what they see coming their way. And look at the conclusion Rahab has made. She has made the conclusion that this means that they are being led by the true God. Not just a God, but the true one and only God, the one of heaven and of earth, she says. Now, you would think that if this woman can deduce or can learn that truth from what she's heard, then why wouldn't the rest of the city have figured it out? In fact, it appears as though, she says, the whole city has understood at least the broad plan. They understand what's happened, what it means, and that's why they're afraid. But they are not reacting the way she did. When the king learned about it, he goes to try to kill these spies of this living God. Rahab, though, responds in a totally different way to that knowledge. She says, ah, if this is truly God and he's coming, then he's going to get his way. I would rather be on that team than on this team. It's not a hard equation, right? It's pretty simple. She sides with God against her own people, which is exactly what we are to do in general, right? We, we side with God against the world. When the world puts us in a position to choose, we know which side we're going to choose. There's just no doubt. But we do that on the same basis she did. On the basis of faith in what we've heard concerning this God. Nobody walked into Rahab's house with a Bible and said, read this. What he did instead was they said, hey, have you heard of what this God of Israel is doing? Have you heard of his power? Have you heard of what he has accomplished through these people? For her, that is the word she heard concerning the living God. And it prompted in her a response of faith. You know, it's easy when you look back with hindsight, right, to say, well, of course she did this. It made perfect sense. Okay, well, that's easy to say now. Put yourself in her position going in. She took a chance that she would be killed, taking the risk that she'll be found out for having harbored spies, so she'll be killed by her own people, potentially. Or maybe these spies don't turn out to be so friendly after all. She brings them into her home, she takes care of them, and then on the way out, they slit her throat. Things like that happen all the time in warfare. She has no idea. But she acted with a confidence based not on who they were, but on who the Lord who led them was, and that she expected he would show mercy to her if she acknowledged him and served him by taking care of his people. And, of course, that's the result. God honored her faith, and he rescued her from his army. When the walls fell, Israel goes up into the city and fights the men of Jericho, the people of Jericho. Joshua gave his army... The order is to kill every single person in the city. It's called the ban. In Hebrew, that means to literally take nothing alive out of the city. But he made one exception. 
Rahab's family was to be spared because she did what she did. Notice the writer says she welcomed the spies in peace. And that means in contrast to the way the rest of the city welcomed them. She didn't have any more information. She didn't have any better reason than they did to do what she did. She simply believed in a way that no one else did. And so she was saved. Now take these two examples together. The example of the walls falling in in the first verse and the example of Rahab the harlot in the second. And you see complementary messages on faith and action. In the first case, Jericho is an example of faith resting in the strength of the Lord. That's when you and I serve him knowing that he uses weak things to shame the strong. That it is in his nature, in his character, to triumph over his enemies using instruments that offer no opportunity for anyone to miscalculate how the victory was won. If somebody says to me, well, Steve, it's a great thing that you're teaching the Bible and it's reaching the world and this is all such a great thing. If they really knew who I was, which is to say a nobody, then you have no one to look at to credit for any kind of anything that comes out of what I'm doing, except the Lord himself to work through his word. Right. And of course, my wife is very quick to remind me that he uses donkeys from time to time. So there's really not much I should be thinking about when it comes to me. That's just the nature of the business. Right. And it's a healthy thing to remember. So in Jericho's case, it's the example that faith doesn't think too much of your behavior. But what's the corollary? Rahab is an example of faith trusting in the mercy of a righteous God to rescue us from coming judgment by taking action in the face of risks. Rahab threw herself on the mercy of an all-powerful God who was prepared to destroy her and her home. And she took this step. She didn't sit back and say, I have faith in God. He'll take care of me. Do you realize, friends, she had faith before the spies showed up on her threshold. It's not as though they showed up and bam, that was the moment she became someone who feared the living God. She was already in that state of mind. But could she have turned the spies away and still been a woman of faith? Theoretically, she could have. Had she done that, would she have lived? No, not physically. You see the point? You can't sit still and expect all the blessings of obedience And by the same token, you can't do works of obedience thinking it's in your own power and glorifying the Lord. It's the two working together that let the God of the world use us to do mighty things and for us to be blessed because of our participation. But in both cases, faith was a prerequisite. Obedience was the testimony. Blessing is the outcome. The Lord brings faith into our hearts for a purpose, friends. That purpose goes far beyond ourselves. I mean, we certainly celebrate faith as a means to our own salvation. I mean, we understand that, but the problem is we often don't look past that. Don't forget you weren't saved for your own sake. Or because, as I said before, heaven won't be heaven unless you're there. That's not the goal. You're saved in order to bring glory to the Lord. As Jesus said to the disciples, let your light shine before men so that they see your good works and they glorify my father who is in heaven. Your mission and my mission of bringing God glory requires a life lived as a reflection of our faith. It's an absolute necessity for there's no other way we can do as we're called to do if we aren't doing works of obedience that often involves us doing crazy things by the world standards, things that go against the current of whatever the culture expects, so that when we stand out in those healthy ways, we bring attention to the Lord who has called us to live that way. 
Now, at this point in the narrative of Hebrews 11, the writer has just barely entered historically the period of Joshua. I mean, up till now, we've started with Abel, remember, and we've moved steadily through time and we've reached the point of Joshua. But if you were to flip through your Old Testament, you realize that's that's barely this much of the Bible. And he's he's gone through most of the chapters so far. There are so many more examples that he could go on and explain. And I assume that if he had continued to relate all of the examples that were available to him, we'd have a whole other book of Scripture just on the examples that are already in Scripture, right? That's, that's obviously not necessary. So that's why he himself moves now into a summary of more examples, but really to the larger point he's been trying to make. Look at verses 32 through 38. He says, well, what more shall I say? For time will fail me. If I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And others were tortured, not accepting the release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. What more could we say, uh, which is obviously rhetorical? He's saying, I could say too much. And so he acknowledges time would fail me if I weren't to cut this short. And then he goes on to mention a series of names. And, and of course, we ourselves could repeat that same mistake, couldn't we? I mean, we could spend all morning on each of these names going back and looking at the history and understanding their, their examples. But since the writer himself chose to gloss over those details, so will I. It's enough to note that the names here are arranged in a pattern. The first four names are judges. The next two are kings. The last one is a prophet, and he mentions the other prophets in passing as well. All of these men, if you were to go back and do this study, and maybe that's really the proper way I should leave the names, is to encourage you to do the homework, to go back and look at these examples and maybe study them with your family and, and just see what you can glean from each of their lives. But... In general, they all fought battles while greatly outnumbered or they took steps that would seem crazy until the Lord showed up and vindicated them. They conquered kingdoms like Gideon. They shut the mouths of lions like Samson. They quenched fire like Elijah and Daniel's friends. Some escaped death on occasion like Elijah, but others endured terrible deaths for their faith like Isaiah, who tradition holds was sawn in two. Women, it says, saw their children raised from the dead because they exhibited faith in God. But then there were those saints that suffered greatly at the hands of God's enemies, even to the point of refusing to be let out from the suffering, for it says they desired a better resurrection. They were, they were willing to wait for their reward in heaven than to gain some temporary earthly version of it for the time being. Interestingly, the writer ends here focused on the suffering. Did you notice that? In fact, on balance, as you look at this summary, there's far more being said about the sufferings of those in in the faith than there is about whatever benefits you might 
accrue on earth. Saints who died not for any reason except for the fact that they love the Lord and they desire to live according to their faith. And because of their faith, it says they were stoned or tempted or just suffering various indignities, living like rats in holes and on the run and without any of the comforts of this world. All of that just sharing the Lord's reproach from the very same enemy. When you study lists like this, it can be the case that you get so deep in the details you miss the forest for the trees, as the saying goes. Look at the forest for a minute. For some saints, living in faith brought rejoicing and relief, like the woman who saw her son brought back from the dead. But for other saints, living in faith brought deprivation and suffering, torture and death. So, friends, what can we conclude from the forest? Well, at the very least, you have to conclude living in faith does not guarantee prosperity, easy life, happiness, sunshine, roses and the rest. Not automatically. In fact, if you just want to do it on the basis of the odds here, it looks like the the opposite is more likely the outcome. So what does it bring? What does living in faith actually bring us? If it's not a guarantee to a nice life now, you know, your best life now is not the outcome of faith according to Scripture. What is it? The writer gives it to us at the end, verses 39 and 40. He said, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us. So that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. I love his ending. First, he says, the saints gained the approval of God through living in faith. Living according to faith pleases God. And when you please God, it meets the purpose for why you have been ushered into the family of God. Or as I like to tell people, why after you became a believer, did you not die immediately and then immediately go into the heavenly realm? Since that's the ultimate destiny of what you've been given in salvation, why not cut to the chase? Why the delay? Why am I still here? And the answer you're left with from Scripture is that it's an opportunity for you. The opportunity is, do you serve and please the Master who bought you? If you do, then there is an opportunity in the heavenly realm to see the pleasure of the Lord reflected in great blessing there. Or, of course, we can squander that whole period of our Life on earth, we can serve ourselves and serve the world. And it would be as if, as Paul says, we come through fire with nothing to show. That's the alternative we have. And the writer says in verse 39, these, these examples are those who gained approval in that sense, who living according to their faith were approved by God. We're not talking about the salvation of these people. We're talking about the sanctification of these people, the output of their faith, not the origins of their faith. We are like children who do as our Father requires. You know what that was like, right? Especially if you're still young, you're seeing it still in your life today. Do what your father or mother asks you to do. If you please them, then you should expect to see their pleasure reflected in rewards of everyday life. On a spiritual level, we're saying when we do this for the Father who is in heaven, we see those rewards in the heavenly realm. That was the first point. Second point. He says we please Him even though we do not receive What was promised? What he means is, in this life, temporally, all these saints in the hall of faith are willing to endure suffering or even death because those things did not matter to them. They had eyes for eternity. They knew that that's where they would see the Lord's pleasure reflected. And that was enough for them. That was enough. Is it enough? Can that be enough? Can it be enough that as we serve the Lord, 
we see no result of that yet, that our life might actually go downhill in earthly standards, less benefits, less comfort, more persecution. Is that enough? And then thirdly, they knew that what awaited them in heaven was far greater than anything they could gain for themselves in this world. So they saw the trade-off as an obvious one. Something little here traded for something great there. And knowing that, there was no way they were going to make the wrong decision in that regard. They knew it was a good trade. Then lastly, he says, these saints were required to wait through their entire earthly lives before they could receive the rewards that God had promised Because he had something good in store for us also. What he's saying is, the plan of salvation included Gentile nations, you and I. And it was possible, it was possible for the Lord to bring the kingdom to these saints earlier than he has. He didn't have to make them wait as long as they've been waiting. They're still waiting. Yes, they've left this life and they are in a place of comfort, but they are not resurrected yet. Their spirit is with the Lord, but their body has not come back to life yet. They're waiting for their resurrection moment because the resurrection has not happened yet. And the writer is saying he has made them to wait a lifetime and longer to receive the promises in the kingdom because those promises and that kingdom must include you and I. Notice the writer says these heroes will not be made perfect without us. That reference to being made perfect refers to the resurrection. There will not be a day of resurrection for the Old Testament saints, as Daniel 12 describes, until the kingdom is ready to start. And the day the kingdom is ready to start, all of us will be there with him. And all of us will have been resurrected as well. Those saints have had to wait their lifetimes and beyond Until the very last Gentile who is appointed to believe is found and the kingdom is ready and the resurrection has been given. So, friends, in a very real sense, these earlier saints have been called to wait. They have been called to suffer for our sakes. They have been made to do these things so that we might have the opportunity to join them in the kingdom in that future day. So knowing this, how can we not also follow their lead and live according to their faith? Are we not obligated by history and their example to honor their sacrifices by serving the Lord the same way? Isn't that the least we can do? I mean, never mind our obligation to serve the Lord, period. But the fact that he has made so many generations of godly men and women live a whole lifetime and even now still wait so that you and I have an opportunity to repeat their life and to live in their footsteps according to that same faith. Isn't that reason enough to make God's priorities our priorities? That's the call of the Hall of Faith. This is not some dusty museum of relics that we're supposed to visit once in a while for a little inspiration or a little encouragement. That's not the point of this chapter. It's the price that has been paid to bring us into the family of God. It's the record of God's faithfulness to his promises. And it's how he has moved that record through humanity over millennia so that on the day we needed to learn these things, it was available to us. The blood of the martyrs brought this to us by the Spirit. And therefore, it has to be our call to live according to that testimony. This is the testimony of heroes shared for our sake. Consider those examples the next time you feel your faith wavering. Consider the inevitability of your death. The inescapable judgment moment that follows. The righteous and demanding Lord who will require that we give an account. And the unimaginable rewards that await every servant who lives according to their faith. Keep those things at the forefront of your mind. And I am confident 
you will please the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, give us eyes for eternity, Lord. Let us see the things these saints saw. Let us walk in their footsteps. Not so that our names would be great, not so that our reputation would be remembered, but so that yours name and your reputation would be glorified among the nations. And call us home, Father, in your appointed day, so that we may stand before you giving an account that pleases you. Don't let us squander these days. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.